Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. We are live from 6th and Peabody, Thursday edition, OutKick 360 coming up. The latest SEC news, notes, and headlines with Trey Wallace of OutKick.com. Crew is all here today, making it happen for us. Big thanks to the staff. Uh, behind the scenes, behind the radio, and behind the cameras, doing great work. Always. Uh, we are right in the thick of all things sports. we got everything going on this time of year. Major League Baseball in full swing for the postseason, ALCS. Hutton NLCS. was all into hockey openers last night? Uh, not last night. I, I was watching some some NHL hockey Tuesday night, I believe it was. Take the Preds have played like six games already because they started in Europe, I feel like. They, yeah. They've been all over the place. We're trying to turn around. They're playing a game. Uh, Michael, I haven't seen a second of any of them. Michael McHenry joins us. Analyst uh, for uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, among other great work that he does for the uh, Major League Baseball uh, channels. Um, Michael, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you guys? You guys are having a little fun this morning, well, huh? Or this afternoon. Yeah, we're trying. We're trying to get after it over here. <laughs> are you? Are you moved? Did you get everything moved out last week? Does that ever stop? Honestly, like I feel like it just keeps coming. I mean, from every direction, it's just coming at me. Is that a couch behind you or a piece a of painting art? or an afghan? I'm, I'm actually in a playland. Oh, no joke. I'm okay. in. I'm in a playland. I'm. I'm in my apartment that I stay at during the season. Could find a quiet place. I'm in a playland. Look, I even got a little guy over here. Look at this guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. <laughs> now that's it great. all makes sense. It was it's like one of those uh paintings where you start really in close and then work your way out. Now I get a sense <laughs> yeah. of the space and where you are right now, Michael. It all is coming together. So I'm of the I'm opinion. Kind of like Billy Madison, let's be honest. That's <laughs> what I am. I'm just like Billy Madison. Do you it also works. have a jet ski in your in your pool that you ride around on like Billy Madison? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me if I'm He's on the right, down, baby. Tell me if I'm on the right track with the Yankees. I, I think that they, as much as anybody, map out their plan in advance and then too frequently do not let the game adjust their plan. Clark Schmidt was coming in second last night, no matter what. And that shouldn't have been the case when Tyone pitched a good game and had him there with Verlander Verlander, even though Verlander was throwing great. But they were in the game and into the fifth inning thanks to what Tyone had done. But Schmidt is not equipped in that situation to, to be the next guy in line. They stuck with him anyway because it was their plan coming into the game and they probably thought they were going to be behind. Well, before we get to that new school approach, think about that 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 idea of the old school, just having some feel, some understanding. You want to get to that middle middle of the road bullpen, right? You always want to try to do that if you can. The reality of it is, that's exactly what happened for the Astros. They take Tyon out, who's one of the toughest dudes I know. He's been through cancer, two Tommy Johns, a lot of different things. So if you can tell as a manager or a front office, call down, and say this guy's got it going. Let him go. 
let him go toe to toe with Verlander because this guy's been through life. Not just has he been out on the mound, he's been on the big stage. He went through testicular cancer when he's in Pittsburgh. He started a charity, did a lot of great things. Let him go out there and play. But you're exactly right. That's exactly what they do. Before these uh, series, they get together with all their nerds. They're, I call them the khaki pants. They get together and they map out the plan from first inning through ninth inning, and they kind of have different scenarios. What if this happens? What if this happens? If we're facing Alvarez in the sixth inning with this situation, runner on, do we walk him? Do we do this? Could they bunt in these situations? They play out all these scenarios and then try to say, okay, this is exactly what we need to do. He cannot get through three times through the lineup. doesn't matter what his stuff looks like today, breaking off the table. They just kind of go by the book or by the analytics, sort of say, instead of going that old school approach, which I think in playoffs, you have to have feel to really take it to the next level. Do you think they might be wrestling a bit in-house? I don't know how many people ultimately factor into their decision-making, but it seems like with shortstop, like a lot of us wanted Isaiah Kiner-Falefa out of there for Cabrera or Peraza earlier. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. Their backs were against the wall with Cleveland. They finally pulled the trigger and and did it. Um, now they've undone it, but it seems like there might be a little bit of a wrestling match going on there. Uh, awfully late in, in the game for it, but you think there's some tug-of-war going on? Absolutely, especially when you think about what the media does. They kind of throw this atomic bomb on top of the Yankees and say, hey, what's going on? Why isn't this guy doing this? What's going on here? And they have availability to all these analytics. So, yes, I think in-house they're having some issues figuring out what's the best scenario. And a lot of times you have a bunch of yes-men saying, yeah, that's a great idea, or they have a better idea, but they never ask the questions or ask the tough questions. And the best teams that I've been around, the best coaches, the best front offices are willing to take a little bit of humble pie and say, yeah, you're right. Maybe we can look at this a little bit different. Maybe we can do some things a little bit different, but take those challenges in. That's how you're really going to win. That's the difference, in my opinion, than the Astros to the Yankees. You have the old school manager, Dusty Baker, looking at it from, hey, I'm going to look at it from this entire big picture approach, have feel, understand it, but I'm going to take these analytics and I'm going to push back some. You know, he's been fired a couple of different times, standing up for his guys, standing up for his players. And that's what happens throughout the league. They kind of want you to fall in line. But if you do, sometimes you're going to win and lose based on somebody's approach way above, not on the field. Michael McHenry, our guest, former Major League Baseball catcher, uh, we'll tie in both series with this discussion. It Throughout the playoffs, home runs, they've accounted for almost 45% of the runs scored in the postseason. That's up 7% from a year ago. What what do you point to on that? Is that just simply luck of the draw on lineups and, and you know some stout hitters throughout? Or is it more about the pitching location so far? It really is the game in general. I mean, if you look at how the game's built, you look at the Yankees, you look at the Astros, Astros are built a little bit different, but the Yankees... They literally beat Cleveland with nine home runs. Cleveland out hit them. They were on base more often. Everything they did was better in baseball terms, minus being able to hit the ball of the yard. They hit nine homers. Cleveland hit two. So who wins the series? Obviously the team that hits the home runs. If you can walk, get on base, and get on base in front of Judge, Stanton, and Rizzo, you're going to be doing some good things. The problem is you're going to live and die by it. You're going to ride that roller coaster. I mean, Paul, you felt the, the horror all year long with Joey Gallo, who's a great player. I played with him. But he's a guy that's going to go all the way up, all the way down, all the way up, all the way down. If he's not walking, it feels like it's always down, even if he hits 30 home runs. But that's where the game is. And let's take it one step further. That's why all these rules that they keep talking about, about speeding up the game, will not work. 
because guys get paid to hit the ball out of the yard and punch tickets. So it's going to slow the game down. It's the reality that we're watching, but it does make it exciting. We saw Verlander yesterday, 17 tickets punched by the Yankees, only two by the Astros. That's the separator in this divisional series. It's those two teams. One team strikeouts a ton. One doesn't. The walks would tie on three walks. One of those walks ends up scoring. So that's going to be the difference. Those little bitty things, putting the ball in play, that's what's going to be the separator because they have those guys that can also hit the ball of the yard. But if you can put a little bit of traffic on, those two-run home runs will really hurt you. Solo home runs, maybe not as much. I didn't see a lot of all the way up from Gallo. Um, let's go back to <laughs> Cleveland. Let's go back to Cleveland for a second. I mean, I understand they're about getting on base. But how do you build around a team that gets on base with, like, slow rollers and bloops? Like, how do you go to the ballpark every day counting on get hitting the ball softly enough that somebody can't throw you out or hitting the ball softly enough that it falls between the shortstop and the left fielder? I'm just confused as to how they could sustain that for so long so effectively. They're pitching. Honestly, I mean, the, the only reason they were where they were is because they played good defense, but their pitching was just phenomenal. And their starting pitcher was awesome, and their their bullpen, if you could get it to that bullpen, it was amazing. So it's not sustainable. It really is not. If you look across the league, I mean, that's the Pittsburgh Pirates. Look at their record. I got to watch them all year long. They didn't have a lot of guys that could hit the ball of the yard consistently or get on base consistently. If you can cause a lot of havoc on the base pass, if you have three or four guys that are still in 30 bags, you have uh, balls kind of going all over the place like a snowball fight. That's a bonus, but that's not the way the league set up. That's not the way Cleveland did it. So, yeah, I don't think it's sustainable. I think you're going to see them grow, get better, and probably put a little bit more power right in the middle of their lineup. But once again, they're a team that doesn't strike out a lot. If you're striking out a lot doing those slow rollers, that's a problem. But you're forcing these teams to make plays, it's always a bonus. And that's exactly what they did. They forced the other team, like the Yankees, to make plays. And if they didn't, they got punished for it because they'd be on second base, base hit, run scores. But the Yankees, obviously being the Yankees, big boppers, boom. Three-run homer, it changes everything. Michael, let's do a little post-mortem on the Braves season as they go down <laughs> to the Phillies. Um, it's a team that certainly doesn't feel like that was their last opportunity uh, to get back to a World Series and, and win one. We've talked about their core being locked up for a while, but what is next for this team? We know it's, it's going to change, and something's going to happen, even if it's just a little tweak here or there. What do you see this team needing going into next season? Not much. A healthy uh, Acuna Jr. is going to really help. I mean, I, I had ACL surgery in 2020, trying to dunk on my nephew. Not a good idea <laughs> when you're 35 years old. You know, you, you prepare all year, try to dunk on your nephew during Christmas. Basketball game, not a smart idea. I tried that, tore my ACL. But once he's back, I mean, he came back a little early. You could see the remnant, especially in his swing. He wasn't able to really dig into the ground, and everything comes from the ground when you're swinging. So the ability to have him back going full throttle. I know he ran well, but what most people don't understand, running's not as much the issue as really twisting against that that knee, really using the ground force to really work that kinetic chain and get that barrel head going. So having him back healthy, and they're going to also get some of their young arms that are going to be back healthy and free and back in the mix. And then Charlie Morton's coming back. I feel like he's more of a leader than anything else, but he's also going to be an anchor at that bullpen, a guy that's going to save, uh, excuse me, the starting rotation that's going to save that bullpen throughout the year. So I don't think they're going to need much. I think Jansen's going to be gone. I think they'll bring back Craig Kimbrell is my hope and let him retire there. I think he'll have a huge year to finish out his career. 
and we'll see what happens. I think they'll be right in the thick of it, and I think they'll push back on that division and possibly win another World Series next year. Hey, one of those young arms, Mike Soroka, uh, had the Achilles mm-hmm. injury. I mean, it, it's been an aw- awful go for him physically the last couple of years. Hasn't been able to do anything. When do you start to get curious about a guy's future at all at that point when you have these injuries stacking up on each other like Soroka's had? I think you can look at Charlie Morton. He's a friend of mine, so I can actually use him. He had two hips. He had all types of things going on with him. He ended up pitching through a bunch of it. I think the biggest thing with Soroka is a young kid. He needs to learn, hey, you're really young. Don't force the issue. Allow time to happen and make sure that all your body is moving well and toughen up. The biggest thing is really toughen up that body. Know what's hurting compared to what's actually hurt. If you're just hurting, you're sore, things are going on, whatever, push it to the side. But if you're actually hurting, let's figure out why you're hurting. Figure out what elements are really digging into that Achilles. Usually that comes from your feet. It could come from your hamstring. So he kind of figures out exactly how his body works. It moves and recovers. He jumps forward. And he's got a lot of guys around him that can really help him do that, especially a guy like Charlie Morton, Tyler Matzik, another guy that's been through different things who just had Tommy John. These guys are guys that can pour those young guys, really help them take that next leap. The NLCS heads back to Philly now. Series tied 1-1. Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, two talents, swinging the bat very well. Harper's got an extra base hit now in seven straight postseason games. Machado, we saw what happened yesterday with how he's swinging the bat and in the previous series as well. What do you make of these, these two guys, and does one of these guys determine the series? I think absolutely one of these guys determined. And yesterday, uh, with Ty on pitching, the first, second, and third guy in the 2010 draft played in the playoffs. I thought that was a really cool thing. Obviously, Harper being first, Machado being third, and Ty on right in the middle. But you look at these two guys, <laughs> their careers align up so much. I mean, Machado signed a 10-year deal for 300. Harper, 330 for 13. These guys are elite players. They're really good. I think sometimes they get overshadowed some by maybe Nolan Arenado, Machado, Bryce Harper. What he's done this year has just been remarkable. He's going to have to have his UCL repaired in his elbow. He's had a DH almost all year. He got hit in the wrist, came back, was having MVP-type season. Machado is almost, I guess, a top four or five player throughout the league when you look at his war, which is wins above replacement. Defensively, offensively, he's just gone uh, bonkers. And that's with Tatis not being there. So he's actually the superstar. You push Tatis to the side, this guy's really stepped up in a lot of ways. So these two guys, whether they're hitting homers, driving balls in the gap, whatever they're doing, they're affecting the game just showing up. So it's the attitude they bring, the character they bring on a daily basis is what's really going to determine, in my opinion, the entire series. Because if these guys show up, they're ready to go. We've seen Harper after the uh, Schwarber homer the other day, just mouth open, absolutely ecstatic for his guys. That's what it's going to take. That's what's going to take you to the next level. We saw Machado not get a timeout yesterday from the umpire and be very upset about it after he struck out. Um, My perception is a veteran usually gets that, and maybe a kid doesn't. I saw one of the Cleveland guys not get one. Um, From your poach behind the plate, perch behind the plate, did you see that usually play out? Does a veteran guy tend to get timeout from an umpire more easily than, than a younger guy? Absolutely, but guys have, I guess, rumors around about the league. Machado's really tough on umpires. Yeah. You know, Harper's been tough on umpires. Now, Harper's really grown up when it's come to umpires. When he argues now, it's usually some merit to it. But Machado's been really tough throughout his career. He's kind of got that swagger to him, and he'll let them have it. So 
wouldn't surprise me if that umpire is like, oh, I just didn't see it. My bad. And me being a catcher, what I would do, like, yeah, he didn't call time. That was way too late. No chance he called time right there. I'm playing right into it, just feeding that umpire exactly what he needs because that's what I'm supposed to do back there. I'm supposed to be the in-between, make sure my guys are getting all, all the love. And their guys just, you know, just kind of throw a little, little atomic bomb every now and then whenever I can. Final thing for you, Michael, Michael McHenry, our guest. Uh, uh, Padres bullpen, one run in their last 25 innings. How crazy <laughs> is that uh, when you've seen their work? And what are they doing so well, especially towards the later part of the game? It's the intensity and, and the identity they've created. Once Hayter started pitching well, I believe it's almost 15 innings now, no runs. He's been phenomenal. And it was just a matter of time. There was a lot of rumors throughout the league that when that trade happened, it was a huge trade between Milwaukee and San Diego. I mean, you're talking about two all-star closers and Rodgers and Hayter getting traded. And it was a great trade on paper. Absolutely great trade for both teams. It kind of switched the money around, allowed Milwaukee to do some things they needed to do. Also gave you know, San Diego, the big splash they needed, but there was a problem with the chemistry there. You know, Hader was so comfortable. He came up with the Brewers. They loved him in the clubhouse. He obviously had some problems a couple years ago with his Twitter. They loved on him. They pushed him through. He felt like he was losing his family as did both other teams. They, they really had a hard time with that. That affected his play, whether people want to look at it that way or not, that affected him. But once he started going, that long hair blowing in the wind, the fastball at 100, the absolute nasty slider, and the trust he was created, and he got the feel of the dry air, game over. As soon as he was going to go, you knew that team was going to take off because he's going to set the tone wherever he's at, the intensity, the love he has for the game, and just his calm, simple, loving nature. He's just a country boy. He's a good dude, went out there and did his thing. That's what's made that bullpen go, and don't expect it to stop now. Once he gets going, it's hard to get him to stop. Follow Michael on Twitter at the Fort McHenry and uh, AT&T Sportsnet is where you can find him during the baseball season. You can find him weekly with us throughout the postseason. Great to have you back on, man. And uh, now you can get back to uh, the, the playroom. I will. I'm going to go over here and play in the slide. You can, you can, uh, you can jump in the balls. You can unmute Dora the Explorer now and yes. get back to that. Go, go right Just, ahead. When you go down the slide, do not tear the ACL again. <laughs> Fair enough. I was watching yeah. Bob the Builder, but Dora Splitter... <laughs> They, yeah, they both maybe play. second favorite. That tracks. <laughs> they're, they're both on in my house. I love it. Thank Thanks, you, man. Guys. Appreciate you. All right. There's See Michael you. McHenry. Uh, great chat there, and uh, looking forward to uh, these games as they continue through the series. Looking forward to our chat coming up on all things SEC with Trey Wallace of Outkick.com. He's next on Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Live in Tennessee covering the SEC, Outkick 360 rolls on from 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. We say hello to Trey Wallace, Outkick.com, covering college football in the Southeastern Conference. Trey, hope you're well, man. Hope uh, 
everything was great in Knoxville. We saw you Friday. We appreciate you swinging by. And man, what what a uh, fabulous setting and scene right there by the river with two solid performances, not just by the quarterbacks, but by the teams. Yeah, I'm good. The bruises seem to be disappearing from getting tackled <laughs> twice on the field after the game. Uh, one, actually, there was a third time by a family member of mine, but I will keep him. On the <laughs> um, so no, it was, uh, it, it I, I don't think I've ever, and I've been to some games before Alabama LSUs. I've covered them. I covered the kick six, um, which is kind of in a different area than this one type of ending, but man, what just great college football environment. And that's why we love it just for stuff like that. So uh, amazing weekend and great coverage from out kick all you guys, and uh, it, it was really good. So set the scene for us on the field, because you know where I'm going with this, with what happened post-game. Uh, was it a confrontational towards Alabama-type environment? Was there any physical contact you were seeing being made with Bama players? You got knocked down twice, one, one time intentionally, one time unintentionally, I know. But what was it like on the field? You know what? So I I I I lined up around the thirty yard line uh, uh, on Tennessee side, so the opposed, so right near the field goal, uh, the the post, and I I turned to a colleague and I was like, okay, if he makes this, this is going to get rough, um, and not in a bad way. Uh, so you know he, he he makes it. I thought he missed it at first, to be honest with you. So I was like, why are these people going crazy? Uh, but then he made it, and so everybody starts. It takes a minute, but people start getting onto the field. Alabama players were running towards the locker room uh, that I saw, and I've gone back and looked at all the video footage that I had from that night um, because it was over like 20 minutes. Um, so, you know, Nick Saban, you know, the president, had his crew leading him to the locker room. And then, you, you know, you you had Alabama players that were running and then you had some Alabama players taking their time getting to the locker room, which is understandable for some because they've been beaten up for 40, you know, 60 minutes. Um, they're just tired. Um, but it was an interesting dynamic because I thought, you know, the fans really, to be honest with you, they rushed to the middle of the field. They didn't go straightly straight to the goalpost because security had the goalpost surrounded. They had like seven security guards in a circle surrounding the goalpost. Well, then finally a bunch of fans started grabbing the end of the post where they couldn't get to them and started yanking it down that way. But then you've got Alabama players that are, and you and you guys have seen it, Alabama players, you know, the locker room goes straight by the student section in a sense, so you're kind of walking through. But here's the thing. They had Alabama personnel, Alabama's police officers, security officers, forcing them into the locker room, like putting them in, getting them, rushing them in. I, I I kept going back and looking at video and I see, you know, personnel just waving them in there and then they would close the gate. Um, so I did, I saw Jermaine Burton on the field, but I didn't see, you know, that that went down. And even Bryce Young was, he was calm, cool and collective walking off the field. Um, he, you know, he, he shook some couple people's hands leaving the field and whatnot. So it was chaotic, but I didn't sense it getting to that level. Like the Tennessee fans were just having a good time. Like, were they trash talking the million dollar ban near the Tennessee media center? Yes. There were some fans that were trash talking the million dollar ban, asking them to play Rocky top. Okay. 
But then we get to where I think we're about to go next. We get to the situation uh, with Jermaine Burton. And also, you know, I've got video, and I don't know who it is on the Alabama staff, but it's somebody on the Alabama staff, an analyst or something, um, you know, who who pushed another person. I mean, literally popped him kind of George's face with a phone. And um, so, you know, I guess we're about to get to that. But, you know, there, there was a little bit of, you know, uh, wackiness involving a few players. Well, wouldn't it make more sense? We talked about this yesterday. In your allocation of resources, <clears throat> You're, if if it's getting stormed, it's getting stormed, and, and these yellow jacketed people or, or who whatever color they're wearing are not going to stop it. But you could conceivably put a bubble around the majority of the guys who need to get to their locker room the way you do for a coach like Saban. Why doesn't somebody try to do something like that and and use the security personnel to sh- help shuttle the players to the locker room as quickly as possible? That protects the the opponent, so to speak, from from getting in, involved in anything. Where I think the kids got to be more responsible, but certainly you you protect the interaction. Prevent so there's the interaction. Kind of, yeah, no, no, Paul, and I and I agree with you. There's um, I saw the Alabama players walking along their sideline and then making a right turn and then going into the the, the locker room. You know, there there was security there just for Alabama players. Now. There's what I mean. Uh, there's a travel roster, so you you can't keep up with everybody when all that orange is coming on the field, and uh, in, in fans. But you try your hardest to. Um, there's a video from AL.com. You can go back and watch, and it and it shows you know the the Alabama locker room, and they're and they're forcing Alabama players in there and whatnot. Um, but I agree with you in a sense. And it's here's the thing. So it's hard to judge on these things. And I'm going to give you a reference. Coach Calipari at Kentucky, when he knows there's about to be a store, a, a court storming, he sends his players to the 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 locker room, the ones that that aren't the starting five. Um, maybe down the road, if the game is out of hand or something, and you know an upset's coming, and you know a a field storming's coming, you're up by like ten, you know, with thirty seconds to go, and it's a wrap. You know, maybe you send some players to the locker room to kind of maybe you know. Um, digress the situation a Get little a head bit. Start. I, I, yeah. don't know, I don't know how that works in football. I mean, anything can happen and we know that in the game, but you know, when it comes to that, am I, you know, and you talked about the yellow jackets, <laughs> the security, they, they were helping people down from the stands, you know, to get on. <laughs> the field. Like, they went straight from, you know, Hey, we're protecting this field to, okay, well, give me your hand. I'll help you down. Let's not hurt yourself. You're gonna you're gonna come down here anyway. Let's let's try right to this way, a, ma'am. Try to prevent an ankle exactly. injury. Yeah, they're jumping on, either way. Just make sure they they land. We, softly. we got the Kappa Delta sorority coming down. Come on, I'll lend you a hand. Jumping over the the wall here. Absolutely. That's exactly what well, it was. But, but so, Trey, let, let's get to the story that you had at at Outkick yeah. with 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 Burton. Um, yeah. How do you foresee? We've all seen it at this point. He clearly reaches his. This argument about he's been provoked or whatever's going on, he smacks a woman's head that's not doing anything to him. It's very clear in the video that she's looking the other way and is surprised by a hit to the head. How do you think Nick Saban handles this? How should he handle it? So I'll start first off with one thing that I noticed going back and through that video until 3 o'clock in the morning trying to put together a piece. Um, his hands were by his side. You know, he was walking. He was just walking to the locker room. And then all of a sudden, you see that right hand, that right arm go up, and he just pops the woman in the head. 
You know what I mean? And and I think that's what stands out for for a lot of people trying to make an argument that the young lady had a cell phone. Uh, I was told that her cell phone died in the first quarter. She didn't even have it. It was in her uh, much like mine. <laughs> I yeah. didn't have a cell Chances phone. Power a guarantee. Yeah, it was. It was out. Right. So she wasn't, you know, she wasn't uh, trying to inflame a situation. She was she was just on the field with their friends. I don't think she knew or cared who Jermaine Burton was. Um, and then Jermaine Burton comes up and, and, and pops her in the side of the head. And, and I think that um, when you when you look at it overall and how do you handle punishment, you know, there, there's there's a there's a difference. So there's two videos that people have made. And put it out there. You know, one, it looks like a camera is kind of being put in his face and Jermaine Burton's pushing the camera away, you know, agitated after the game. Okay. I kind of understand that part. Like it didn't look like he hit the guy in the face or anything like that. It looks like he pushed the camera away. But this instance where he just is walking to the locker room and nobody's bothering him, by the way, like if you look at it, he's probably got three feet of nobody around him. And then the girl comes into to picture any 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 hits her upside the head I I think when it comes to Nick Saban look he handles discipline internally we know that we've seen these cases in the past uh if a player is you know, arrested or does something on the field or academics or whatnot he won't show his hand and he's not probably going to show his hand until Saturday uh yeah Saturday afternoon um when Jermaine Burton in my opinion will not be on the field. Uh, for the game. And and there's, a, and there's a big difference here too. Like I know some people have said, well, if she doesn't press charges or if nobody presses charges against Burton, then, then he should be good to go and he should be fine. No, it's not. A university has to take it up upon themselves to handle discipline in these sort of circumstances because the young lady, she might just want to go on with her life and maybe didn't realize how big this video was going to be when she posted it. Uh, and, 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 and didn't expect it to blow up the way that it did, uh, which is where I'm going with that. Um, and overall, I think Alabama, they have to send some kind of statement because if they don't, then the SEC will. And I think that's the kicker in all of this is that, you know, if, if Nick Saban and look, you know, Nick Saban is talking to Greg Sankey or anybody, just like any head coach would. And talking about, okay, look, this is what we're going to do. You know, we we know this is a horrible look. Uh, he should not have done that. But one thing that stands out to me that I do find interesting is that we posted this story Tuesday. The video came out Tuesday. I have not seen an apology from Jermaine Burton um, on the incident. And I think that is the interesting part of all of this is that, if Alabama is going to take this thing full on and say that he did it or they're collecting information or whatnot, the easiest thing to do would be for Jermaine Burton to say, look, I am sorry. My emotions got the best of me that day. I do not condone hitting women in any form or fashion. I hope you can accept my apology. I'll take any kind of punishment that comes my way. Trey Wallace, our guest from outkick.com. Trey, which Will Rogers shows up? on Saturday against Alabama for Mississippi State? And can Zach Arnett come up with a plan for Jameer Gibbs in the run game? I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, you, they had the perfect game, you know, set up for them without Will Levis at Kentucky, and they just blew it. 
Um, it, it, it just Mississippi State just confuses me. Um, I look, I Will Rogers is a good quarterback. He he really is. He can sling the football around, and if they try to game plan up with it, that's fine. Um, you know, possessions were hard to come by because Kentucky just ran the ball with Chris Rodriguez uh, for like 195 yards. Um, I look, I think Will Rogers can be a guy that can go in there. And if look, if if Mike Leach goes back and looks at the tape of the Tennessee game and says, you know what, screw it, we're just going to have our wide receivers try to beat their safeties down the field. And we're going to kind of scheme against them in the middle. If he airs it out, I think they can have success because what we realized during the Alabama Tennessee game is how good Alabama's defense for all these years and whatnot, and how good they are with Dallas Turner and Will Anderson. They're slow in the secondary and at the safety spot. And that's something that if you're Mike Leach, you got to take advantage of if you think you're going to be in this ball game come midway through the third quarter. So, you know, and, and and Jonathan, you asked too, how does Arnett handle Jameer Gibbs? I mean, good luck because Jameer Gibbs can hit you in so many ways out of the backfield uh, in, in the receiving department as well. You know, it's it's almost like who are you going to put a spy on? Is it Gibbs or is it Bryce Young? So I think that's where you kind of have to go with it from there. Right, let's go for about a minute of the next three here and we'll go rapid fire. LSU hosting Ole Miss, the Rebels, the first big test for them on the road comes in Baton Rouge. And the question I have about this matchup is last week for LSU just kind of a one-off or is this the LSU Tigers offense about to hit their stride, starting to hit their stride? I think if LSU runs the football like they did last week, I think if Jaden Daniels passes the football like he did last week against Florida, uh, then, then LSU is going to have a darn strong chance against uh, Ole Miss on Saturday. I do. I, I, I think so. This could be one of those games where Lane Kiffin comes into – walks into Death Valley and walks out with a loss. Um, I, I think, you know, I, honestly, I think Ole Miss is so talented on offense with Jackson Dart, Zach Evans. Um, they've got de- defense, Jonathan Mingo. It's going to be very difficult for LSU, but I'm, I'm to answer it real, just real clearly, I'm very interested to see if this is the LSU team at home we see against Tennessee, or is this an LSU team that we see rejuvenated after that big win, in my opinion, down in Gainesville? Texas A&M at South Carolina on Saturday night. I think, Trey, a huge opportunity for Spencer Rattler to show something against a really good defense in the SEC, something he has not done yet, quite frankly. What do you think about this chance for South Carolina to get a big home win against A&M? A&M, by the way, a three-point road favorite in this game. Yeah, by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys now, I picked South Carolina to win this game 27-23. Um, I, I I think this is a, a Marshawn Lloyd running back for South Carolina. It's been fantastic in recent weeks going back to that Kentucky game. He ran the ball really well. I thought Spencer Rattler uh, uh, passed it around well enough to different receivers. He didn't focus on one. You know, he, he kind of spread the love here. And here's the other thing, too, with Texas A&M. Like, I trust them with the running game, but I don't think that Haynes King performance that we saw at Alabama, I don't think that is sustainable. For him, and and maybe that's me, but I need to see him do that in back to back weeks before I'm saying, okay, Texas A&M and Haynes King, this thing might work. Um, that's what kind of stands out to me. I, I think overall, I think an atmosphere like that in Columbia on Saturday night, um, you know, this could be one of those next games, man. Shane, here's how I'll end it. Shane Bieber did it last year. Remember, he beat Auburn and then he beat Florida, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, okay, this is wow. 
I think this could be this year's two-game stretch where they beat Kentucky, they back it up with a win against Texas A&M. That's where he gets his two-game stamp of the season and, and, and you know, gets bowl eligible in a nice way. Both of those teams coming off of bye weeks going into this weekend's matchup in the SEC. Finally, Trey, Vanderbilt and Missouri. Missouri's already 0-3 in the conference. They're 14-point favorites at home against Vandy. What what does this mean for Eli Drinkwitz in the future at Missouri if he wins versus loses to Vandy in this setting based on how bad they've been? If he loses, uh, you talk about people coming out with pitchforks against him. For for a team that had expectations of six, seven wins, you know, and at least and I look, the Georgia game's not lost on me, but that was a team playing their best at the best time and Georgia just playing bad football. Um, I I, th- I think this is going to be rough um, if Clark Lee goes into to Columbia and, and grabs that win because people are going to come be coming after Eli Drinkwitz in that job. I don't care what he's doing with recruiting. Um, you you should not be losing the way that they are losing. And then also, you know, with the quarterback situation where he has a number of good ones on the roster, like what is he doing? You know, in, in my opinion, I think this is a team. This is this is a spot where Clark Lee can go to Columbia and grab his first SEC win. I think if A.J. Swan comes out and throws the ball, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what's going to happen now. A.J. Swan's going to come out. He's going to throw for about 290 yards and about three touchdowns. Missouri's offense is going to fall apart in the second half under Brady Cook, and Vanderbilt's going to come out of there with a win, in my opinion, 27-21, to 21, and Vanderbilt gets their first SEC win of the season. How about you heard that? it here first, right yeah, there. I, Trey I, Wallace, sending me a like, draft like it's already happened. Like the a- game's already been played. I'm asking because I'm I'm considering taking the money line on Vandy as well um, with, the, with those I just odds, like them. So. I just like them right you know here, John. Let's all do it together right now. Let's all let's get all our phones and let's do it. Let's like just a prayer make circle. this thing – uh, let's make Party, it reality. Let's go make it to uh, outkick.com slash bet. That's outkick.com slash bet is where you can uh, find those odds right now for all of the college football matchups this weekend. Trey, thank you as always. Really enjoying the content at Outkick. Great coverage this week on and off the field uh, from kneeling to uh, across the, the conference. Thanks. Hey, listen, I appreciate it so much. And uh, watch out. I'm going to give you a little quick pick tonight. Okay. My South Alabama Jaguars beat Troy tonight in Sunbelt play in Mobile, Alabama. So there's your pick of the night. Do Parlay they, that with Yanks over Ash. Do they cover the three is a better question. Yes, <laughs> they, yes, they're going to win outright. We're good. The okay. Jags will win outright tonight. There you go. Godspeed. All right. Thank you, Trey. We're taking both of those he's options. He's giving us there. all kinds of picks. There he is. There's we Trey should just Wallace. turn that just, into a pick segment with the confidence just, he's showing. Uh, I did it. I just bet on South <laughs> Alabama, too. <laughs> Load him up. Just just put an inkling of an idea in front let's, of Chad. Keep, Trey, streak he's keep on. Trey on hold, and then we'll I mean, just get some more picks uh, from him. Chad started the season, I believe, with about 11 cents in his account. Now, <laughs> now, it's, well, I had, now after he deposited $200, well, he, no, but he's he got, got 211. Up. I had 180 no. last week, and now I'm down to $37. Yeah. So. That's You're why just goes, flying. Goes quick. Hey, I'm, anything I touch it right now loses, so anything Trey says, I'm going to take. Great column from Chad at OutKick right now. Uh, we're going to get into that when we come back. Uh, interesting uh, comparison for college football's unbeatens. That's next on OutKick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Outkick 360 rolls on. Coming up, we've got the SEC rankings according to Las Vegas. One big thing on every NFL game as well coming up in hour number three. One of my favorite segments. We'll go rapid fire and you'll learn about each matchup this coming Sunday. Well, we'll start tonight as well. And it'll be beneath the surface. A couple layers deeper than just matchup records and who's starting a quarterback. Um Chad, I'd say you went a layer or two deep on the uh, on the unbeatens across college football, taking a much different approach in how you would compare certain unbeatens to a certain extremely popular and awesome show. Well, I read a lot of college football stuff throughout the week, and I've noticed a couple of different rankings of here are the remaining unbeatens, here's their path to the champion to the the playoff, and we're going to group them in, in you know th- these tiers or. We'll give them a, a, a rating, right? One to 10 rating of how likely they can get to the college football playoff. And I said, I just don't want to do that because that feels too easy. And like I'm just replicating what everyone else does. So I said, how can I be creative and do this? Okay, I will take the nine remaining unbeaten college football teams and assign them a character from the show Yellowstone to give a depiction of their chances, where they are right now, who they are as a program. I'll give you guys one sampling, if, if, if you will allow me. All this via Outkick.com and uh, the QR code on the screen. If you're watching, you can scan that and check this out as well. You can read all this. Outkick.com right now, you're right. Yes, and definitely scan that QR code. Tennessee is Beth Dutton. Far and away, I would say, I don't know about the most popular, but the most known character from the show because she does a lot of crazy bleep. Speaking of bleep, this is what I wrote. Tennessee's offense is a bleep that no one wants to mess with. That bleep word starts with a B. I'll let you f- figure the rest out. Does that sound familiar? Beth Dutton is the most memorable part of every episode of Yellowstone, whether she's bathing nude outdoors in front of the entire ranch or using language that makes her father want to curl up in the fetal position and beg to get hit by 12 more bullets. The Vols have been the prettiest and most memorable thing about college football up to this point. A team that was picked third in the SEC East currently sits at third in the nation. They're averaging 46 points per game and are the only team in the country to average over 300 yards passing and 200 yards rushing per game. The numbers are staggering. Beth's numbers are also staggering. (laughs) But with all of her bluster, Rip and her dad can expose the soft underbelly of vulnerability similar to what a competent passing attack does to Tennessee secondary. While I don't think either are in it to win it in the end, I'll be watching every step of the way. Well and done. what I mean by that is I think Beth Dutton's probably going to get axed in season five or at some point, and that's going to start a holy war on Yellowstone the moment that she's dead. So uh, that's just one of the nine. I've got Ole Miss as Jamie Dutton. I've got um, Georgia as Rip. And I don't want to spoil the rest of it, Hutton, but those just a little sampling of what you can Give read. some uh, surprise characters that the you may Vin, not know. The Venn diagram, <laughs> the Venn diagram, yes, I even have a reference to I had to look up the IMDb page a reference to Monica Long Dutton, Casey's wife. Didn't know her name. Uh, that Her name was Monica Long hyphenated Dutton until now. But the Venn diagram of college football fandom to Yellowstone fandom, th- there's 
there's some similarities there. So I feel like a lot of people are going to Here's what I know about Yellowstone. You like Kevin Costner? I like Kevin Costner. And seven out of ten young ladies uh, who visit the fine facility that we are in wear a hat because of Yellowstone. The Y, the Yellowstone logo on no, the No, not the, not the logo, but the kind of hat oh, that they yeah, wear the on hat, Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah. They've set fashion. Yes. Paul, you have a column up on the uh, the trend of trading for the top wide receivers across the NFL. Yeah, well, I checked in on A.J. Brown, on Devontae Adams, and on, <laughs> now I'm going to forget the third one. Tyreek Hill. On Tyreek Hill. Um, and uh, so I just ran through reminding you what the trade cost, what the contract cost, bullet points on what they've done in their new location, a check-in on their former team, and a check-in on their quote-unquote young replacement. Um, the most interesting nugget I found in all of this, which I, found un- uh, I find unfathomable, is how bad the Raiders are. The Raiders were the NFL's sixth passing offense in 2021. They acquired Devontae Adams. They're 23rd in passing offense right now. Now, he's done some impressive things individually, and I think all three of these are looking like wins right now if you had the money. Um, And certainly the the teams that they left are, are mostly struggling. You'd rather have these guys than not. But, in Las Vegas right now, if you're a fan of that team, you could say, hey, we got this guy. We used to be good at throwing the I ball, mean, and we're not very good at throwing the ball right now. You're probably sitting there saying, with all the problems of John Gruden, he's a superior offensive coach to Josh McDaniels, it looks like. I don't know what the deal you is You were with saying McDaniels. Josh McDaniels just might not be great. He, you got to give him another year to cycle through personnel. He just might only work as Bill Belichick's offensive coordinator. Which is and that's a, fine. Yeah. He can be very successful doing that job for the rest of his coaching career. Mac as Jones long as Belichick's that way too. That's true. He'd still be better than Frank Reich. Hutton, some some guys are just meant for each other. That's what I'm saying. You know? Just meant hey. to come together. Fight. Union. Gathering of two. Becoming one. McDaniels headed back is what Scott said. It's McDaniels. We'll be back in five minutes. It's a triangle. It's a triangle. Return. Unity. <laughs>